0: welcome to today's edition of the baseball america college podcast i'm teddy cahill joining me as always is joe healy and we are here to get ready for super regionals that's right we have super regionals this weekend very exciting this time uh next week we'll we'll be in omaha or the teams will be in omaha anyway uh out joe and i'll be in transit maybe i don't know it depends on when you're listening to this but anyway we're we're closing in on the start of the college world series But first, we've got to get down to those final eight teams. We've got 16 teams left. We're going to get into those super regional matchups here on today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts you can check out the Rapsodo national player database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, it's super regional weekend, very exciting time in the calendar. Some people uh, around the country I know believe that this is the best weekend of the college baseball season because of the high intensity drama that you get uh, in those game threes with Omaha on the line. I ended, frankly, in the the first two games as well. for me, I like the volume of last weekend a little more. Uh, you know, the, I, I just like there being a ton of baseball. And, and you know, and that, that's why opening day even is is uh, maybe a, a bigger highlight in some respects on the calendar for me. But, Joe, uh, what, what, what are your thoughts in general about uh, Super Regionals, the drama, the viewing experience?
1: It has evolved over time. It, you know, it, Super Regional weekend used to be my favorite weekend on the college baseball calendar. And a lot of that was based on the fact that back in back in the day, as time continues to, to roll forward, but back in the day, super regionals were on ESPN. Now the College World Series has been on ESPN for a lot longer than that, obviously. But one of the big one of the first big changes in college baseball coverage was getting super regionals on television. And I'll, I'll never forget where I was when I found out that hey, like Super regionals are on TV, like, and I hardly knew what super regionals were at that time, but it's just a very clarifying moment for me where I, I happened upon the East Carolina, South Carolina, 2004 super regional. And again, I was paying pretty close attention to college baseball then, but just kind of assumed that, ah, it's none of it's going to be on TV until, um, you know, until we we get to the College World Series and you may, (laughs) you, you kids probably don't know a time before you know, there was things like social media that could tell you, like, basically when anything was going to be on TV at a certain time and what channel and, and how to find it. Didn't exist to the same degree back then. I did not happen to check my mom's uh, print edition of the TV guide that week to see what was going to be on ESPN, but stumbled upon it. And so that was always kind of a treat. You know, it was, uh, I got to see the College World Series every year on TV, but I didn't get to see Super Regionals. And those were so unique because it was the, the actual college ballparks and the college, you know, the, the the home atmospheres, and there was a kind of a quaintness to it because they were on campus sites. So I I actually really enjoyed that weekend more. As time has gone on, though, I'm with you in that I like the volume of what regionals gives us. That if hey, if you don't if you don't really like this one game you're watching, if it's gotten out of hand, there's 16 others to choose from in that particular window. Not the case quite with super regionals, and super regionals can also to a greater degree than regionals we get some years where super regionals are kind of a dud to be honest i mean there's only so many games also you know the cinderellas sometimes turn into pumpkins in super regionals we've had i mean the stony brook is the exception to the rule we have much many more examples of cinderellas getting through to super regionals winning a regional getting through to super regionals and then kind of falling flat and so you have some of those you have some that are just bad matchups you have some teams that just have horrible weekends east carolina against louisville a couple years ago stands out where good East Carolina team that just did not play well in a super regional is over before you knew it. Um, So all that, all that said, I'm with you now that I have evolved to where now regional weekend is probably my favorite weekend and conference tournament week is frankly right up there in terms of times of year, just because of the volume. So again, if you, if you don't like one game, you can find a hundred others or so it seems. And and that's kind of nice super regionals. You you are kind of stuck with what you got and that can be awesome you know 2016 super regionals, I think, is stands out to me as a particularly fantastic year, but there have been a number of others that you get to the end of the weekend and you're just kind of like, eh, okay, well, on to Olaha we go, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I the on Friday, you know, there's going to be one game in each window, there'll be a little bit of overlap, and then on Saturday, potentially on Sunday, depending on how many go to game three, you'll get more. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, oh, uh, it's Friday night and there's this, there's this one game off. <laughs> like, I don't know, I for, for me. I, I like the volume play. I like the I like drinking out of the fire hose on Friday nights during the regular season, you know. That's uh that, that that's what I love about the the sport is that there, there's just so much going on anywhere you look at any given time. But here we do get to to zero in on some of these matchups and uh we've got some really good ones. I I'm excited about what the super regional round can be. Uh, we talked about how this tournament has been a little bit chalky to this point. And, you know, the the, the downside of that, I guess, is that last weekend didn't provide some of those Cinderella storylines. The upside is that we get some absolutely fantastic matchups, some really premium matchups as we go into Super Regionals. And then, you know, for the most part, all of that's still on the table for uh, for for a fantastic College World Series full of of big time matchups, big time programs. I don't think attendance is going to be an issue at the twenty twenty one College World Series, just given what the last year has been. But you know, when you have programs like Texas, like the Mississippi schools, like LSU, like Tennessee, like um, you know Arizona. Uh, you know i can keep going down this you, you, you arkansas you, you have these programs that you know are going to travel well to omaha and so like you can start getting excited about that as well so the, the, those are the upsides to uh to what wound up being a pretty chalky tournament and i'm excited to to, to look at some of these some of these matchups uh joe before we get into all of these, Uh, I think that it's worth touching on a couple of coaching moves here briefly that happened this week. Um, Maybe we'll find time to get into these a little bit deeper, but I feel like we probably won't here. So I do want to acknowledge that uh, several jobs were were filled this week, most notably Texas A&M hires away Jim Schlossnagel from TCU after 18 years in Fort Worth. Uh, schloss nagel is headed to college station and he is now going to be tasked with bringing the aggies their first national title and uh he's going to be trying for his first national title as well it's just about the only thing he didn't do at tcu took them to five uh took them to omaha five times won conference titles and mountain west conference usa and big 12 as tcu worked its way through realignment. Uh, generally just got to the top of the industry he, he was the 2016 coach of the year tcu went to omaha four straight years in there and
1: uh now he's uh he's taking that to a m yeah and i mean you you said it exactly right there the, the task at hand is nothing short of delivering a m its first national title i think that's that's it and that's really really lofty but when you really look at the landscape of college baseball there are very, very few programs. And, and we won't sit here and do a full accounting because there are some exceptions here. There are some that, that we, we could just sit here and do an entire episode of like parsing this out. But that being said, a and is one of the few, few college baseball programs out there who that, that has not won a national title that most people agree either should have or very easily could have to this point and has not done so. There are some programs that through the years, will win national titles that people weren't thinking of. Also, like I said, I'm sure there are others that would come to mind on this list. However, um, there's just kind of an expectation that AM should be, and this isn't just baseball, by the way. I mean, this is the reason why they hired Jimbo Fisher to, that, you know, uh, massive contract a few years back. There's an expectation that AM should be competing among the elite in the country, to say nothing of the SEC, of course. And in baseball, that, that's true as well. And they've had little um, dalliances with that. A couple of Omaha trips. They went to Omaha a few times under Mark Johnson before Rob Childress got there. So they, they've they played on the national stage quite a bit, um, but just not with the consistency AM would have liked and a supporters would have liked. And that's what's on Schlossnagel's plate. And it's a new challenge for him. And I think that's a lot of what's at play here. Um, he was paid well at TCU. There's reporting out there. Drew Davison at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reporting out there that suggests that they were ready to re-up again and, you know, do what needed to do to keep him. And Nagel just, you know, apparently just wanted kind of the challenge of A&M and, and who can blame him? It's a, it's a big challenge. It's for competitive coaches like himself. I mean, it's a, you know, one of the really big challenges out there to take a program like that and, and take it from great to national title. Great. And, um, I'll be fascinated to see how it plays out over the next few years. He's got a little bit of work cut out for him. Last place finish for A&M in the, um, in the sec West this year. And, um, not, you know, it's, it's not a roster that's necessarily ready to compete right away. So there's going to be some, some retooling going on there. So, uh, the results will not be immediate, but given the track record that he had at TCU, there's, there's little reason to expect, um, that he won't be able to, uh, at least on the first part of the job, which is okay, let's get back into place being an Omaha team. There's little reason to believe he can't get there. It's the national championship part that obviously is a little bit stickier.
0: Here is the craziest stat that I found in regards to Jim Schlossnagel and Texas A&M. You ready for this, Joe? A&M has been to the College World Series six times ever. Jim Schlossnagel took TCU there five times since 2010.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that. I mean, they're really, what's funny about that too is like the absolute, the part of that stat that gobsmacks you the most has to be the fact that like in the grand scheme of things and am wildly successful. Like a lot of those trips are relatively recent off the top of my head, 93, uh, 99. Those are two of the older ones. And that's not that long ago. That's my, you know, that's my lifetime.
0: Yeah, I mean, Childress has two in the last decade too. uh, right. 11 and 17, I think.
1: Yeah. So like, it's, it's not as if we're comparing them to, you know, some, some program that's been morbid, you know, so that that's kind of the amazing part of it. And I think we generally there are, there are a couple of things in college baseball that I think we as daily observers, because we, we cover this on a day to day, we make kind of assumptions about what's impressive to us and what's not and, and what really resonates. But there are a couple of things in college baseball that I've always thought we don't talk enough about. One of them, by the way, quick aside, Boise State spent years putting a baseball program together, then canceled it after one year. That's one of them. We will talk about that offseason. That is unbelievable. Anyway, the other one, though, four straight trips to Omaha for TCU. Um, and by the way, at the expense of AM quite a bit in the in that run twice. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, four straight trips to Omaha, I mean, that's stuff that teams were doing in like the eighties and nineties and you and I, and of course, before that, I mean, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about how college baseball is different from those years, but four straight trips to Omaha for a program like that is, is the type of stuff you saw back then and like not so much now that's really rarefied air and it feels like for i'll just speak for myself that feels like something that i have spent not spent enough time truly appreciating that type of run
0: yeah i think that's fair i definitely think that's fair i mean it's incredible um i think prior to that you had to go back to unc doing it uh when they made the two national title appearances as well in that stretch it just it's not something that gets done very often and uh anytime you think that somebody's running it off then all of a sudden like oh like you get upset and, and the streak the streak breaks or and just something goofy happens and uh so yeah an incredible accomplishment there and uh we'll see we'll see what schloss Nagel can do now at a&m also announced this week gary henderson promoted at utah uh, he takes over the program from Bill Kinenberg after spending the last two years as Kinenberg's pitching coach and associate head coach. Uh, and then also Rice hires Jose Cruz Jr., who is an alum of the program, a guy who's played 12 years in the big leagues, won a gold glove, uh, and most recently was the assistant hitting coach for the Tigers, a, a position that he began this season uh, but that is also his only coaching experience. He has not worked as a college coach, and now he's taking on a pretty significant rebuild at Rice. So, interesting hire, uh, you know, big time connections to the program. His son played at Rice as well from two thousand eighteen to two thousand twenty. That's Trey Cruz. Uh, but it's a uh, it's a different thing to to have to take on. Uh, a rebuild I think it, it, it might be one thing if Rice were in a position where they were looking for a coach because Matt Braga had taken Rice to uh to a super and you know he was about to take the AM job or something like that uh you know where where you could walk in and say like okay just keep this going but no Rice hasn't had a winning season since 2017 so you know they're you got to, you got to get them up to speed and then get them into a point where, you know, you're trying to get them to where they were under Wayne Graham. Maybe Jose Cruz Jr. can do it. We'll, uh, we'll have to see uh, his connections to the program, his, you know, big league pedigree uh, and, you know, just being able to sell the idea that you know, he knows what it takes to to get to the big leagues. I mean, th- those are two big things, uh, but uh, I'm going to be very interested to see how he adjusts to the realities of college coaching.
1: Yeah. Homecoming of sorts for Cheito, as they call it. You know, I think it's, it's fast. I'm fascinated too. Like I'll be interested to see, I think one other thing he has going for him, he's got another son on the team, but Antonio Cruz on the team now at rice. Um, Obviously Trey Cruz is a much more high profile player. He was a legitimate prospect as well. That was part of why he stands out. But one of the other things I think he has going for him too, is is kind of through his sons. Um, He also, I think is a little more connected in like the Houston baseball scene. And so I think that's helpful. Um, so it's not like he's been completely now. You know, in working with the Tigers, I'm sure he's not been spending a lot of time beating the bushes around. At, you know, going to games in, in H I S D and in the suburbs. Like, uh, you know, he's got other things he's been focused on. I mean, but, it,
0: it has just been this season, though.
1: So like, right. maybe he
0: was doing that a year ago, two years ago.
1: Right. So I mean, I'm certainly sure he was spending some time around it when his sons were were coming up through those ranks. So I think he's he's relatively well connected in that regard, and, and that's one of the things that at Rice. You know the. Rice used to be really, really good under Wayne Graham, and, and we've kind of, because of my history being from Houston, we've dissected Rice to a greater degree than probably any other college baseball podcast or entity out there. But, you know, they, they used to do really, really well in schools in HISD in, in the city, you know, um, you know, schools like Bel Air High School, for example. Um, and as more of the center of the Houston baseball world has moved out into the suburbs, there wasn't as much of that going on in, in the city. And I think that's one of the a number of contributing factors where some of those places where Rice was historically very strong in terms of, of having influence in some of these schools, just don't put out the players they used to in some cases. And, and, and so obviously that's something evolving that I think Cruz will have to grapple with, but I think they, it, it should very much help those some of those schools in the city uh, be connected back to Rice and and bring some of those players those players to Rice. There's no doubting his passion for the program. I think it matters a little bit too, that he was there. Not that somebody who was there during the height of, of Rice's run under Wayne Graham couldn't do the job, but I think it also matters that he was really Rice's first big recruit. He was pre-Berkman. You know, Berkman this week actually was asked about it and said, you know, I, I went to Rice because I said, if okay, I know Jose Cruz Jr. is a heck of a player. And if he's going to go to Rice, that means this legitimate thing. So he went to Rice because he saw Jose Cruz Jr. committing there. making a commitment to Rice and that that helped him believe um so Jose Cruz Jr could argue was probably the biggest recruit in the history of Rice University baseball so he saw what it was like when the talent wasn't that good frankly yet and he really helped elevate them so I think that can matter a little bit too before that program was really cooking it with gas really at its highest level he knew what it was like he saw firsthand Wayne Graham dig that thing out and get it going and so it's a different college baseball world but he's seen what it was like before it got going. So he knows kind of what it takes to get it done and whether he can or not is, is the big question. And we'll have to find out. And it's not going to be, as you alluded to with the roster being where it is, it's, it's not going to be an immediate answer. I don't think, um, you know, Matt Braga didn't get a ton of patience there. So I'm not saying that he's going to be given a lot of rope here, but I have to imagine given his history and, and given the situation now, he's going to be given enough time to, to really kind of, rebuild and just kind of start over there because I think that's probably what it requires.
0: I'll uh I'll also note here quickly that uh Jose Cruz Jr is of Puerto Rican descent and uh, it's pretty cool that you know there's going to be another uh, minority head coach in a very prominent program. Uh you know, we don't have a whole lot of those especially with uh Spencer Allen stepping down from Northwestern um just you know I know Rice isn't a power 5 Uh, program or power five conference program or any of the rest of that but it's uh it's a very prominent uh uh, college baseball program and you know outside of you know a couple uh there just aren't many of them being led by minorities so uh that that is that is a a cool side aspect of the story has nothing to do with whether he'll be successful or not although maybe it does you know i mean we've seen programs be successful recruiting puerto rico i don't know uh, whether that will be a strategy employed at Rice or not, but uh, you know, at least something good to see on on that front. That's something that college baseball has really struggled with over the years, trying to find uh, minority representation in the dugouts. Uh, all right. Also this week, uh, Florida coach Kevin O'Sullivan announced that he wasn't going anywhere. Uh, it was not the gif from wolf of wall street that was not the statement that he put out but it might as well have been um and since john cohen left kentucky for mississippi state in 2008 uh no sitting sec head coach has been hired away by another school so as you see various sec coaches pop up in the rumor mill yeah it's just worth remembering it's, it's been a long time since any one of them actually went out and took a job anywhere else other than the job that they they currently have uh, all right so that's enough coaching news. we got we got plenty to get to with the games on the field here and that's what we're gonna do here in just a second. but first check this out. All right Joe, let's talk super regionals enough of enough of the coaching market. let's, let's talk let's talk games. Uh, we're gonna I'm just gonna take this in chronological order here. Um, so on Friday, first super regional game that's gonna pop up on your TV or your smartphone or tablet, whatever you're watching games on these days, you know, it's a, it's a Friday at noon. I don't know where you're going to be. Maybe you'll be in the office and uh, you'll, you'll pop it open on your phone, but it's going to be Vanderbilt. It's the number four national seed taking on East Carolina. They're the number 13 national seed. It's happening in Nashville. Um, So this was, (laughs) you and I talked about this. Uh, East Carolina always just seems like they get the noon slot. And if, uh, If facing Vanderbilt and Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter isn't going to get them out at noon, I don't know what will. But uh, hopefully everyone takes the opportunity to watch this game on Friday because you you got Gavin Williams, you got Kamar Rocker going. Uh, It's uh, it's hard to get a better pitching matchup than that in this weekend. I mean, those are two of the, the those are all American caliber guys. Those are prospect caliber guys. It's it's everything you would want in a game one pitching matchup.
1: No doubt about that. And as far as where I will be, I'll be driving to Knoxville. So shout out to Corey Glore and the ECU baseball radio team that I will be tuned into it on my drive to Knoxville and looking forward to that pitching matchup, which, you know, wish I would be settled to where I could get it on TV or what have you, but um, yeah, it's Gavin Williams. I've kind of been on the Gavin Williams train the last couple of weeks because, you know, I saw him pitch. I was aware of the numbers. Like I knew what was happening, but I don't think I really fully took account of the fact that, know some of his raw numbers don't necessarily stand out but he wasn't really in the rotation until conference play started certainly not stretched out um the weekend where i was there when they played cincinnati was really the first time he had been stretched to that degree but on a rate basis his numbers are outstanding um as dominant as really anybody now is he doing it in the sec no of course not but just as dominating as anybody could possibly be over the last 10 weeks of the season and um, so I think it's a really fascinating matchup and it, it obviously feels um, it's, it's important for both sides. I think the easy thing to say is, well, it's really important for ECU because they don't really have anybody behind Gavin Williams that can do what Gavin Williams can do. But the thing about for Vanderbilt, as we've talked about it before, the formula for Vanderbilt is win, win, rocker pitches, win, win lighter pitches, and don't mess around with a third game. The beauty of a super regional is Vanderbilt is very much built to win in a super regional, because if they do that this weekend, it's over. That's all there is to it. Um, so East Carolina is going to get a couple shots to put Vanderbilt in an uncomfortable situation and get them to a third game. And by the way, East Carolina loves a little bit of a sloppy game. They do a lot of pitching changes. They have a really deep bullpen. They throw a lot of different looks at you. The lineup is pretty deep um they've got a lot of things going for them if you try to get in the mud with east carolina it, you know it's just like you know they say don't wrestle with pigs in the mud because the, the pig enjoys the mud you know you're not going to be comfortable in the mud well east carolina is so if we end up with some of these messy sloppy games where the starting pitching isn't all that great i think that tilts the balance a little bit we saw vanderbilt in a game just like that against another team that also doesn't mind sloppy and ugly in georgia tech last weekend and they pulled it out but georgia tech made that really uncomfortable for vanderbilt and east carolina i think is a better team than Georgia Tech, better equipped to win games like that than Georgia Tech. And I, I don't know that Vanderbilt really wants to get involved in that with East Carolina this weekend. So
0: my view on this is slightly different. I just think ECU and Vanderbilt are coming at this from a pretty similar standpoint. And like I, what you're saying is not incorrect in any way, but like if you look at ECU, they got Williams and Wisenhunt at the front of their rotation. And then after that, some question marks, Jake Coochmaner, uh, was the three last week? Presumably he would be the three again this week. He's a veteran. He's had a lot of success over his career, but this year has not been as successful as the rest. They have an incredibly deep bullpen, probably a deeper bullpen than Vanderbilt, but less in terms of like big time arms. So how is that gonna play against a Vanderbilt offense? like that that is very interesting for me to see. Uh, you know their their offense is good. Uh, you know, they got Norby, they got Thomas Francisco up there. Um, they can make some things happen. They're, they're going to, they aren't, neither team runs a ton. Like if you look at Vanderbilt's stats in terms of running, they look great because Enrique Bradfield has 46 stolen bases. But other than Bradfield and a couple other guys, like they're not really running up there. And, but they're, they're both, both offices are capable of forcing the issue a little bit, uh, but also hitting some home runs. I just think they're they're matched up pretty closely in terms of the way they want to play the games and I I just I find it hard to believe that ECU is going to walk into Nashville and beat Vanderbilt at a game that's at least pretty similar to what Vanderbilt is going to do themselves
1: thing with East Carolina that I think is a little bit of a question mark is, you know, Wisenhunt, and I'm sure you noticed this too, because you're doing the, you know, the freshman of the year watch all season and whatnot, is that Hunt just really hasn't been the same pitcher the second half of the year. I mean, he hasn't.
0: Yeah, he got injured and it did, did not, it, it hasn't been quite the same year,
1: right? Right. It just seems like he hasn't bounced back. Like, I'm not speculating on whether he's still nursing something or not. I'm just saying the numbers show that, I mean, he hasn't thrown more than five innings since mid-March, you know, um and that was, you know, right before he started missing some time. So it just, feels like he's just not quite the same pitcher. And so they – I mean, he's had some good outings. He was good against UCF earlier this season. So, I mean, it, it, he's still been effective in spots. And as I look at the lines here, they're still winning pretty much every time he starts. So, um, but, you know, he's still getting it done in a lot of ways. But there is a little bit of a, a, a drop-off there for sure. And so, um, you know, I, 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 East Carolina would love nothing more. This goes kind of goes without saying. But to win that first game and be in a position where, you know, that wizard hunt game can kind of be – you know a game where they um if they win it great if they don't they still got that third game in their pocket and they feel pretty good about being in that type of game in game three.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, in both of these cases they they just the way to beat Vanderbilt is you got to find a way to win one of those first two and then just get it to a game 3. And so that, I mean that's got to be ECU's the, the way they're looking at it and you know just win one and then you know ride a deep bullpen. In game three. That that's gotta be the game plan. Now you just gotta execute it. And all, all you have to do to execute it is to beat Kamar Rocker or Jack Later. So it's that come,
1: simple.
0: Yeah, could uh get, go 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 for that uh this weekend there at ECU and uh we'll we will see. But it, it, I think this is a fun matchup, good way to get the round started. Uh so after they wrap their game up, or probably a little before, but anyway, the the next one up there on friday is going to be texas tech and stanford tech the number eight national seed stanford the number nine national seed this is happening in lubbock and you've heard me say it probably 50 times this season on the podcast you just don't
1: beat the red raiders in lubbock much you sure don't and you know in typical i think kind of uh Tim Tadlock fashion, you know, they're they they they're such, um it's the right way to put it, like shapeshifters with their pitching staff where it's like, you know, you, you don't know. We might use Micah Dallas as a starter. We might use Micah Dallas as our closer. Um, and I think, you know, they do have legitimate questions, I think, on the pitching staff at Texas Tech, but I think this matchup is pretty good where – they feel pretty good matching up against the Stanford team that's built fairly similarly. Stanford is a little more beholden to roles on the pitching staff, but they do have similar depth issues, I would say. And so it's similar to ECU and Vanderbilt. It's like you, you count, okay, these two teams play a similar style. Texas tech has a lot more history winning this way. This is kind of the way they're built to win. Stanford would ultimately not probably not like to be winning this way. They'd probably be like to be a little more sound on the mound and you know, Oh by the way you you just had all the history of Texas Tech in there where it's you know it's it's at home and this is a team a group used to winning like Omaha is kind of their has been their second home of late um you know don't look now but they're on a not too different run from what we just talked about with TCU quite frankly so um it just feels like a particularly good matchup for Texas Tech in this regard now with that being said I'm I'm probably selling short the Stanford offense which has been really excellent this year but it, it does feel like for Stanford to have some success here, they're really going to have to lean hard on a guy like Brendan Beck at the front of the rotation. They need something solid out of him. They can't afford the bullpen to be taxed early in this weekend because I just don't think they're going to win that kind of game. Um, And and they need to get Texas Tech as off schedule as they can. There is no such thing as a schedule pitching-wise for Texas Tech, but but you know what I mean by that. It's, you know, whoever they try to start, get that guy out as quick as you can and start forcing them to cycle through guys because that's where you're going to have a little more success.
0: The, the scary thing about this super for me is that it's a day, like all, all three games are starting at 2 o'clock local in Lubbock in June. The ball is going to be jumping. Uh, you know, I am willing to bank that. So, yes, you need to pitch well. But, like, I, I just find it hard to believe that this one is really going to be decided by the pitchers and i mean maybe it'll be decided by whichever team is able to hold their opponents under seven you know something like that as opposed to just being like all right here's a one nothing game or a three to two game even you're gonna have to you're gonna have to score runs both of these offenses are plenty capable of doing that they both have a lot of power they both run pretty deep um you know Stanford plays really good defense. Tech doesn't play bad defense at all, but, you know, Stanford just plays really good defense. And I like the athleticism there. I do think, though, that Tech is better equipped to win this in terms of what they're coming at you with on the mound and being at home and all the experience that you mentioned there, Joe. I mean, Stanford one of these years is going to get to host a super regional uh, they have not been able to do that. I think they were supposed to the one year they lost the home regional. I guess that was 18. I think they were a top eight seed that year, uh, but they haven't been able to host a super regional lately. And the last two they've uh, they've had to go to uh, it was to Starkville in 2019. All And, and that was, of course, uh, a Mississippi state team that was, uh, you know, incredibly experienced, incredibly talented, uh, and all the rest of that, and th- that was just going to be a, an impossible super regional to win. It felt like, and then this year going to Lubbock. So it's uh, these are these are not easy places that Stanford's been getting sent. And you know, we'll we'll see. But I I, I just think with uh, with everything Tech has in terms of experience, and uh, you know, like, like you're talking about with with, with recent Omaha history, uh, they're they're going to be feeling it this weekend. I would expect.
1: And to add the little cherry on top of, of what's already a difficult Sunday for Stanford winning there is I saw Carlos Silva, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, tweeting their day about heat advisories going on in Lubbock, uh, which is no surprise. That's the other factor of, of June baseball. But, um, you know, Texas Tech's got a team full of kids from Texas, a lot of them from West Texas, those desert areas where it's 100 something degrees basically all summer and Stanford it, most guys are from a little different place than that. And so those those types of little things can end up mattering. You know, hot is hot, and baseball players are used to playing in hot. But, you know, the, these Texas Tech kids, they've been ex- exposed to a lot more of that at this point than some of those Stanford guys. And, you know, th- those little advantages can play a role for sure.
0: One last thing on this super for me is that if you have not gotten a chance to watch much Stanford this year, and, you know, that would be understandable, because uh, if you don't have the Pac-12 network, you know limited opportunities to watch them otherwise uh but Brock Jones uh is an incredible player definitely a player to watch if you're interested in the draft next year or even if you're just talking about like preseason all american candidates in 2022 uh Brock Jones is a guy you want to watch love what he brings to this team uh came to stanford as a two sport guy uh you know was going to be kind of a john lynch type playing safety on the football team and baseball he's done with the football aspect of it and he really has taken off this year and i mean it's uh he's just uh a, 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 i i really enjoy watching him just really dynamic really athletic out there can just do a whole lot of things and uh so if if stanford you know i, I don't want to say like if stanford does anything he's going to be at the heart of it but like also he might be you know he's uh he's just a a premium premium talent for the cardinal
1: a strong jaw in him too yes, yes strong that, jaw he's kind of got that i like, mean
0: it, it's it's the total john lynch package
1: yeah it's like an action movie protagonist you know like brock jones just kind of looks like he'd go into acting after his playing days are done well
0: and you know brock jones he's already got the action movie name you know
1: true yeah he doesn't have to go by any sort of pseudonym like that works for sure yeah let's do it
0: let's let's cast that movie
1: yeah. it's a shame, you know, he, I mean, there, there are, you know, if he was at UCLA, like boom, the film school's right there. Like I don't USC. know what Stanford's or USC. Yeah. Even better. Like, I don't, you know, so I don't know what Stanford's film school situation is like, but it's probably not that.
0: righty. <laughs> uh, we are moving on here. And at six o'clock on Friday, you got number one, Arkansas. That's that's number one period. Uh, Arkansas. And they are hosting North Carolina State, which was the number two seed in the Ruston Regional. This is the first time we've been talking about a team that was not uh, a, a seeded host last week. NC State, though, coming in incredibly hot. They really turned it on in the second half. They dealt with some COVID issues in the first half of the season. Just not a good start to the year at all. It's why they didn't host. But they've been as hot as anyone in the second half they swept through the Rustin regional uh and they are back in super regionals for the first time since 2013 and all they have to do now is go on the road and play arkansas which uh i mean you, you guys know you guys know about arkansas you've, you've been listening to the podcast best team in the country uh elite defensive team incredible clutch performers especially because of kevin cops at the back of the bullpen or wherever they pitch him Uh, He was not just pitching. Like it's hard to say a guy who came in, in the third inning of Monday's game seven is a back of the bullpen guy, but like that is, he's a relief ace is the, is the way to, to go with that. Also the SEC pitcher of the year, also the nation's ERA leader. Uh, So yeah, that guy, Um, you know, and and, uh, I just, a lot of athleticism, a lot of depth in this lineup, a lot of power. NC state's going to have their work cut out for them. If they're going to be able to do anything on the road. But again, just, the the way they've been playing, their their top four to six pitchers match up really well with anyone. If they get off schedule, it's not the depth isn't really there. But if if they're able to just keep it tight, keep a tight group of what they're using on the mound, uh, you know, they they'll have a real chance here in Fayetteville.
1: Let me return your serve a little bit because it sounds like you have a like. There's a little lilt of optimism in your voice there, and I'm not saying I don't have that. But let me return your serve a little bit. If NC State pulls a massive upset here and wins this super regional, what do you assume happened?
0: Um, well, I would assume that NC State stuck to its pitching script. I would assume that everyone that somehow NC NC State wins this has to make sure. That Kevin Cops gets in a game, uh, one like gets in a game. Ideally, both of the first two games, because you saw what he did on Monday night. He threw seven innings. Um, if they have to do that in Game Three again, I assume he'd be up for it. You got to make it so that they can't do that. You got to get him in both of the first two games, even you know in a losing effort. Um, you got if you're going to lose, if you're NC State, you gotta you gotta lose close make sure that they use cops. And if you're winning it it would behoove you to win tight so that they make sure to, to use cops. That one's a tricky proposition. Uh, but you did see them go to cops early, uh, against NJIT. He was in like the fourth inning of, of, uh, the opener of the regional. So like, you just got to make sure they get cops in there, ideally for a couple innings, both Friday and Saturday, and then get to Sunday in a way where, you know, Cops is not going to be able to, to, to give them seven, get an early lead, and then find a way to hang
1: on. I think a lot of that tracks with what, what I'm thinking. Like, I I think the Cops thing is important. I I thought of it as like a slightly different variation on that, which is that I would kind of assume maybe that NC State, like, really blitzed Arkansas starting pitcher early to where Cops gets in the game, but it isn't enough. Right. Like NC State's pitching does enough to hold on to like a seven, six win or something like that, where six of the runs came in the first inning, you know, something like that, where, okay, we got to go to cops here. And he ends up throwing five innings, but we never end up taking the lead. And and NC State holds on because the the thing about NC State's pitching, too, is you're right. They they do have to stay on schedule. But also it's not outside of Evan Justice. There's like not a lot of swing and miss on the staff. And so it's not really a staff, even though they've been really, really solid the second half of the year. It's not really a staff that goes out there and um, outside, of, I guess Reed Johnson's had some games like this, but for the most part, they're not out there throwing seven shutout, especially not against offenses, the quality of of Arkansas. So I, I do think it's a, a situation where they just kind of ha- have to do enough. And then I think the offense is going to have to carry him home. And if you can make us create a situation where cops is not holding on to a lead because it kind of feels like, if they've got the lead and here comes Kevin koch I mean, it goes out saying that you're in real trouble. So they they just kind of have to avoid that type of situation, I think. But I'm with you if you can if you can get him into games. I mean, that's Nebraska caught a break when they when Arkansas had to do that against NGIT and it didn't end up mattering. But there's a different scenario where that does matter. You know, like um, that's not unfathomable. So I think it's something similar there for NC State where. they they need to get cops to get in and get used in a pretty substantial way early on, ideally in a situation where they're trying to play from Arkansas is trying to play from behind. They just can't quite get it done. Yeah.
0: And I don't think cops has pitched three games in a row. So if you, if you get him in, in the both of the first two and get it to a game three, like you're still going to see him on Sunday night, but we don't, it's just, we don't know what it would look like and it would greatly reduce the, the likelihood I would think that he's going five, six, seven innings. So that's the way it's got to go down for state. Now, are they going to be able to follow that script? That's a very tight script we're outlining. And yeah, there's just very little margin for error, but I mean, that's, that's true. You're playing the number one team in the country. Um, I don't know what the, you know, I, I didn't watch enough, at Ruston. And I don't think NC state got pushed in Ruston enough to know, like, are they going to get tight in moments? Um, Cause that's one thing Arkansas is definitely not going to do. It doesn't seem like they it, they've been playing tight games all year long. I don't expect them to to freak out just because Omaha is on the line. They've uh, they've been playing close games. They they're, they're comfortable in that moment. Uh, they got Charlie Welch to come in and, and be the pinch hit king. Like they, they got all sorts of things they can do late in games if they need to. So you know, it, what what is state going to look like if they get pushed like that? I, I I don't think we have as good of an answer. Especially we, it's hard to say when there are you know ten thousand plus uh, Arkansas fans calling the Hawks. You know, I, you don't know what you're going to do in that moment until you're there. So. Uh, responding to that moment is also going to be critical for the Wolfpack. All right. Last game of Friday night is Arizona and Ole Miss. Arizona, the number five overall seed, Ole Miss, the number 12 overall seed. Arizona made the light work of the Tucson regional uh, light work might be overstating it. They swept the Tucson regional though. Ole Miss got pushed by Southern Miss, but they, uh, they pull out the Oxford regional and you have a rare situation here, Joe. I haven't looked up to see how often this has happened, but I know it's a rarity that you have an SEC school going to a Pac-12 school for a super, uh, which just sets up a, a pretty cool dynamic this weekend there at High Corbett.
1: Yeah, it can't happen all that often. Like, it, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that's got to be a little bit of a a little bit of rarity i'm sure there are other especially
0: a high-end school like so it's one yeah. thing like back in the day like this wouldn't have happened because of the way they did super regionals now since we're seeding all all 16 and just conference matchups happen where they do you know whatever in a regional whatever um but you know back in the day you know, if this had happened it probably would have been an sec two or an sec three they a pac 12 team probably would not have been matched up with an sec
1: host yeah i think that's right that's a good point yeah. And, and you're right that we would just have fewer opportunities for this because, you know, it used to be if you were a, a West Coast team that had hosted a regional, like you could pretty much set your watch to the fact that you were taking on another West Coast team in a super regional. That was just much to the consternation, by the way, of of West Coast fans. I mean, how much have we heard heard that through the years? So uh, regardless. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think this um, this was gonna be a lot of fun. Um, you know, and, you know, unfortunately, our Ole Miss friends in the media who maybe aren't traveling to Tucson, I have a feeling you're in for some real late nights. Um, <laughs> some of those games, you know, you got I, Ole Miss being in the uh, central time zone helps buy you another hour there. But, you know, Saturdays a a 10 p.m. Eastern start. So those gonna be some late nights there for the uh, Ole Miss contingent that is not making the trip to uh, to bake in the sun next to Nick Suss in the um, Tucson heat. So. um One thing that's kind of interesting to me about the Super Region, this is a a very specific thing, but it is something I am fascinated about. And that's that Arizona has to be comfortable, like even against Doug McKenzie, although less so against McKenzie, obviously. But they have to be pretty comfortable. Like we are going to score runs in this regional. A, because we always score runs. And B, we're at home. And, you know, C, Olmez has pitching questions beyond Doug McKenzie and I guess Taylor Broadway on the back end. So they have to be pretty confident in that. So on the flip side of it, Arizona also knows that they are going to give up some runs because they've given up runs all year. And Ole Miss is a very, very good offense. But it does make me wonder if, you know, we've seen Tim Elko do some superhuman things. And I wonder if it's an opportunity for Arizona to kind of neutralize Elko just because, you know, one thing that other teams haven't necessarily been able to do in the postseason is neutralize them in the way they have because they in these tight games, a team like Southern Miss, for example, probably doesn't feel like, well, we can't really work around Elko because we can't put guys on base. But if you're Arizona, like Tim Elko on first base because of a walk is kind of a liability for Ole Miss, right? I mean, they're going station to station at that point. So if your choice is Tim Elko's going to go yard on us here or we're going to put him on and force Ole Miss to go base to base on four singles to try to score a run, like maybe that's, maybe that's a better option because we know we're going to score eight runs. So as long as they score seven or fewer, we're okay. Um, and so again, that, that's a really specific thing. But for some reason, it's it's one of the ways places my brain went when I started thinking about this matchup because, you know, w- one or two runs are important, but if old, if, if Arizona is going to score 13 or 10 or whatever, like one or two runs is, is probably okay, as long as you just don't give up, you know, as many runs around that. So um, the degree to which, you know, Tim Elko is as much of a factor here, uh, I'll be fascinated to see. There are definitely gonna be runs in this,
0: in this uh, weekend that these are two of the best offenses in the country, perhaps the best offense in Arizona, almost not that far behind, I don't think. Arizona's bullpen, though, has been very good of late, and I'm interested to see them against this Ole Miss offense, and for that matter, they just pitched really well. I mean, they did not have to play Oklahoma State last weekend. The the bracket worked out so that they played Grand Canyon once, and then UC Santa Barbara twice. And while Santa Barbara has an okay offense, like that's not that's not the Gauchos' thing. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be a little more interested to see like what you know. Garrett Irvin was outstanding uh, on Saturday against UCSB in the winners' bracket game that basically won Arizona the regional right then, but. You know now what's that gonna look like against Ole Miss? Um, you know, I, I I'll be I'll be very interested in, in what that looks like. Another thing here is um you know Nikasey was brought back on Monday for like five outs or something. Doug Nikezee is not the biggest dude in the world, so like now how does Ole Miss manage him? Is he starting on Friday night? Is he starting on Saturday night? Like do they have to like rein him in a little bit like i don't know um that's that's another thing to watch and then i would i would just say that like high corbett is going to be unlike pretty much anything olmus has played in this year. um and then how do, how do they respond to you know playing in effectively a big league stadium um you know with the the big alleys I, they, they have, a good outfield defense and everything, but you know, Arizona, this is their home park. They know how to, how to defend it. They know how to get balls into the gaps and just keep running until you, you have to stop. How does Ole Miss uh, respond to, to that kind of environment? Maybe it won't be an issue at all, but it is uh,
1: it's a, it's a little bit bigger park than I think Ole Miss has been used to. It is interesting because these two teams are very good offensively and they, and they kind of come at it from different, respects arizona has a couple of guys with pretty decent home run numbers both freshmen by the way jacob barry and and daniel susak but this is kind of a double sitting team and arizona almost always is that the 2012 national title hitting team national title winning team was a team that was good offensively but it was a lot of you know hitting the to your point hitting the ball in the gap and just running you know and, and playing in high corporate field will kind of force you into Running your offense that way. And so Ole Miss, meanwhile, is is more long ball centric and the stadiums they play in that makes a lot of sense. So it is it is a little bit different philosophically. And you do wonder if there's a little bit of an adjustment period where, like, sure, it's a pretty offensive environment. But, you know, does Ole Miss have, you know, a bunch of warning track flyouts, you know, until they can kind of adjust and figure something else out if the stadium is playing playing particularly big over the weekend. Cause you really don't know that until it's going to be hot and dry. Like we know that, but you just don't know how the ballpark is going to play to so get there and win playing a factor and, and all that stuff. And to your point about pitching on Arizona, hundred percent with you. I mean, the, the team ERA is down to 4.34, um, which on its face does not blow you away, but given where it was and given how good this offense is like, that's, that's way more than good enough for Arizona to win. Basically every game where it pitches to its averages, like it's going to win those games. And a couple of guys have felt, pretty important in that regard one of them is Chandler Murphy where he was um you know a freshman who was kind of up and down and up and down early this season and it seems like he's kind of gotten rid of the downs for the most part you know he hasn't had like a really disastrous outing in, in like a, in like a long time since maybe late May um so he's really kind of settled in a little bit one of the other ones is uh, again another freshman T.J. Nichols who I know Michael Lev who covers the Wildcats locally out there in, in Tucson um, kind of refers to him as future Friday starter, TJ Nichols. And he's been really solid lately as well. It's big time stuff from TJ Nichols. And so they're going to come at you with SEC velocity with, with, with a number of guys on their pitching staff. So in that regard, it's, um, you know, it's the type of pitching staff that, you know, can, can get stuff by Will Miss as well. So Arizona is not going into this series unarmed on the pitching staff at all. They are still going to give up runs. I think that's inevitable with when you when you have this combination. But but you're right to point out that it's this is not the Arizona staff we talked about in March, where we thought, oh boy, you know, it's going to be a bunch of 12, 10 wins all season long. And I think last weekend against UC Santa Barbara, against a you know, pretty good UC Santa Barbara offense, they they did a really nice job in one games on the mound. And that's very different from what they were doing earlier. All right that wraps
0: up the first round of supers so those those series run friday to sunday this next group we're going to talk about begin on saturday and run saturday to monday of course uh monday being the uh the if necessaries uh we're going to start on saturday at noon in columbia south carolina where virginia is taking on Dallas Baptist, this of course happening in Columbia because these are both number three seeds. And in this strange pandemic year, uh, to host a regional or super regional, you had to set up a testing site for COVID 19. And that requires weeks, not days. So the NCAA was stuck with their predetermined sites. And they picked Columbia uh, for this one for any number of reasons, and we kind of got into that uh, earlier in the week, and not worth revisiting here. Uh, But point is here, you got Virginia, you got DBU. I don't think either of these are Cinderellas. Yeah, they're both three seeds, and yeah, I mean that means there's going to be a three seed in Omaha, and unless South Florida wins, Uh, it's super regional against Texas. We'll get to get that in a bit. You know, these this will be the hot, the lowest seeded team in Omaha. However, we're talking about Virginia and like, yeah, maybe I goosed Virginia a little bit in the preseason when we put them in the top five, but like, look, I really believed that now they're a super regional team. So I'm, I'm not here to apologize about that. And then you're talking about DBU, a team that like, yeah, okay. It's, it is a Missouri Valley team and for a Missouri Valley team to be in super regionals, let alone Omaha. I mean, it's not something that comes along too terribly often, although, you know, it does happen. This is the second time, in 10 years that DBU has made a super Missouri state made a couple in that time. So you know, it, it happens, but th- this is also a consistent regional team in DBU. It's a, as Jim Schlossnagel put it last weekend, it's an Omaha program that just hasn't been to Omaha yet. So that's what you got in this one. Um I, I think it's a, it's a pretty intriguing matchup here. Uh, you, you've got, Virginia, which has been playing better in the second half, much like NC State. A lot, a lot of pitching. Uh, and then you got DBU, which I just look at as a really veteran, really experienced team. And, uh, Joe, I know you you can dive into DBU further, but, like, I I, I don't know that, like, any team here has a really significant advantage uh, over the other one. Like, I, I think the big advantage here is is UVA's pitching, but it's not like DBU is – it's not
1: like the Pats are, are slouches on the mound either no they they're really not i mean they, they they don't have the depth virginia does and that shouldn't be surprising we're talking a you know acc power program national title winning all that kind of stuff against what's ultimately a very very high end mid major but a mid major nonetheless and in depth tends to be where that difference is you know dbu can dbu can go man for man you know for virginia for the most part but once you get kind of into the depth we're talking a little bit it's a little bit different story so that's where the, the difference often is there, and I think you, you'd you see that here. And, and I'm with you. The, the big advantage here, if we're, if we're going to find one, is I think Virginia pitching, but DBU's offense is good enough, A, to upset that a little bit. I don't think there's anybody – Virginia has pitching that can shut down DBU's offense. However, DBU's offense is good enough to where we, we cannot just assume that Virginia will shut down DBU's offense. It's an offensive environment in Columbia. I think that's advantage DBU if you're looking for one. They certainly are a lot more comfortable – Playing that type of game. However, I would have said the same thing about Old Dominion last weekend. Old Dominion's offense really struggled last weekend, so there's that. Um, So Virginia was able to neutralize that when it really when it mattered the most. I think Virginia it's big that Andrew Abbott kind of comes out, and Andrew Abbott was pretty good against South Carolina in the opener of the regional last weekend. But he wasn't like you know shut down, just dominate game kind of thing. I, I think that's important for Virginia because I think if Virginia can grab this first game, I think it's in really good shape. That's true of all of them. But, you know, DBU, especially if DBU has to go to two or three bullpen guys in the first game, like they really do struggle beyond the first couple guys in the bullpen. And, you know, and and Dominic Hamill's by far their best starter, right? Yes. Yeah. He's the guy that gives you some some big time stuff like true power five stuff. He's also the only guy that really gives you length. Their other two starters have thrown less than 70 innings. Now, it's a little unfair because Luke Eldred is still recovering from Tommy John. He's only in the last few weeks thrown even six innings in a start. So he's been extremely effective this year. He just hasn't thrown a lot of innings. So if Abbott can outduel Hamill, and Hamill, by the way, like hasn't looked as good the last few weeks. Maybe he's hitting a little bit of a wall. Um he's also a guy who traditionally his stuff doesn't hold all that well. You know, he's a guy that comes out throwing mid-90s and doesn't hold it. Um, so that's just kind of the, his MO, I think. So if if Abbott can outdo Hamill, Virginia is in really, really good shape. I think DBU has to come out and win this first game. They have to outdo Abbott, get into that bullpen, make them burn through some bullpen arms, which Virginia might be a little bit lighter in the bullpen than they have been before. I had Blake Bales, who was extremely good for them this year, tried to pitch in the regional trainer came out. They had to lift him. I, you know, I haven't seen any sort of update there. I haven't looked for it either. Um, but their bullpen's good enough to where like one guy is not going to make a huge difference, but it can make a difference if DBU is able to get them off schedule. And these bats are good enough that they absolutely could do that in day one.
0: Yeah, I um I just like the Moxie that UVA is playing with right now, and the the thing is, uh, DBU's got that too. I, I think both of these teams they they came through a lot to win their regionals. Uh, they both you know, had to win Monday games or in Virginia's case, Tuesday games to, to get there. And it was, uh it was a really tight thing. You know, UVA won in a, a walk-off. Um, DBU won because they scored six runs in the final few innings to, to put away Oregon state. So I, I, I just, I like the, uh, I like the edge that these teams are, are, are playing with. And I think this is going to be a really fun one. I think it's probably going to go under the radar. Uh, you know, it's, again, like Vandy and ECU, these are noon start times uh, all the way through, I guess, Monday is at one if it comes to that. But, you know, so it's going to be a little buried and all the rest of it. But I I think that these are, these are definitely games worth watching. And they should be exciting games, even if, uh, you know, it's not the biggest brand names in the sport. Although, Again, it's not like UVA is not that they uh, they do have a national title here uh, in the in the pretty recent past in 2015. Um, so yeah, if you haven't watched a ton of these teams because UVA wasn't playing very well early in the season and then they fell off the radar, and because DBU plays in the Valley and that's not the world's easiest conference to watch either, like I, I think it's worth going out and, uh, and and checking out some of the the Columbia Super Regional this weekend. All right, um Saturday at two. You do get two huge brand names. And I'm a little surprised that Saturday at two is when this starts. Now, the next two games are primetime games, but I'm talking about number seven Mississippi State against number 10 Notre Dame, the Oma Irish. This is for me one of the absolute best supers matchups. I am So, so excited to see how this one plays out uh, in Starkville. You've got Mississippi State, who has frankly been really up and down over the last month. Uh, They looked really good last weekend in in the Starkville Regional. Uh, You go back to the SEC tournament, and they couldn't have looked worse. Go back one more week, they looked great against Alabama. Go back one more week, looked real bad at home against Mizzou. So, like, what Mississippi State are you going to get this weekend is like my biggest question. And then number two, the question on everyone on Twitter's mind in Mississippi is, well, how's Notre Dame going to respond to the new dude? And I mean, while I'm not that concerned about it, Notre Dame's a pretty veteran team. Like they've been through some stuff, but you know, I've been to a super regional at the new dude and it's uh, it's a different kind of thing. Like there are not many environments like that in college baseball so how is notre dame going to respond to that but we are talking about a team that scored 50 runs in three games last weekend and only gave up five so you know i, I i'm i'm really into this one i've talked a ton about notre dame over the the, the season uh so i i don't think anyone's surprised there joe what do, what do you got on on this matchup
1: well if, if notre dame's performance last weekend wasn't enough to make you believe in this team being able to get to Omaha. I think one thing that could also help is that like Mississippi state continues to send signals that it's pitching staff, maybe just really can't be trusted. Like the stuff is, is clearly good. Like there's no doubting that, but Christian McLeod against VCU last week is really not particularly good. I mean, he dominated with 12 strikeouts, but he ended up, you know, having to get lifted in the sixth when they'd scored four runs on him. And the week before against Tennessee, he wasn't very good. Week before that against Alabama, he was. Um, but there's been a lot of up and down for him. Will Bednar has been better lately. Um, You know, again, he also had a great start against Alabama. I'm sensing a theme here, but you know, Jackson Fristo struggled again. They, they, he didn't make it out of the first inning against Campbell in the regional final last weekend. And that's kind of just a continuing pattern for Jackson Fristo over the second half of the season. And, you know, Houston Harding tends to kind of be the guy that at the bullpen, they can get some length out of that they have on occasion started. But the last time, They tried to give him a weekend starting assignment. It was in that Mizzou series and he wasn't good, Uh, you know, so they've got Landon Sims. They, you know, will like I said, Will Bednar has, has kind of emerged and been better of late, but considering how much depth we talked about them having and how good the stuff is there. Like I just kind of have some trust issues with that pitching staff to be quite honest with you. And the way Notre Dame is swinging the bats, like I think, um, I think that could be a little bit of a trouble spot for Mississippi state because, uh, that combination seems like it could be particularly troublesome given the recent history of those two entities going into the weekend. Yeah. It has not come together the way we thought it would for Mississippi
0: state. This is a pitch and staff that if you go back to the preseason or March and frankly into April, like we were talking about like, Oh, maybe this is one of the best in the country. Like, it's, it's not that McLeod has been good, not great. Maybe even more like fine as a Friday starter bednar is better on saturdays they have a sunday issue right now with frisco uh for a while it looked like he had settled it um but they definitely have a sunday issue and landon sims has been electric this year for a while there was a reasonable debate to be had about him versus cops as the the best reliever uh that got settled a long time ago in favor of cops but okay like Landon is the second best reliever in the country like okay it's that's all well and good but the thing is he has not been used twice on a weekend much like it's happened but he's barely I and I even have to look I'm I'm not even sure it's happened more than once maybe that he's been used on back-to-back days so they're going to need something out of Landon Sims this weekend. Like that is, that is a guaranteed lock that they're going to need Landon Sims twice this weekend. I don't see any way that it doesn't go down like that. So what's it going to look like? Can they use him three days in a row? Can they use him back-to-back days and slightly extended outings? Like what, what can they get out of Landon Sims uh, is is going to be important because they're, they're likely going to need something from him this weekend against a a really good Notre Dame offense. On on the Notre Dame side, it should be said that for all that we're talking about, like, oh, don't know about this with the Mississippi State pitching staff. Don't know about that. Like, if you look at Notre Dame outside of John Michael Bertrand, like, you could have similar things. Like, I think I just am believing in their ability to play matchups. That's what they've been doing all season long. But, like, it's kind of, like, it's, like, six to seven guys – don't get them outside of those six to seven guys. Cause if they, if you do like it, it just isn't, they haven't had as much experience. So they're able to stick to that last weekend because they played so well, but if Mississippi state starts scoring runs uh, and they're able to get deeper into the Notre Dame staff, I, I would start having more questions about the Irish pitching staff.
1: It's kind of the amazing thing, right? Is like, this is not new for Notre Dame. Like you and I have talked about this a lot. We identified this very early and, no one can throw them off of that. Now, some of it is because they use like six or seven guys and like all of them are stretched out enough to where like there's not a single like one-inning reliever in the bunch, right? I mean, they've got a lot of guys. Outside of Bertrand, everyone else has kind of thrown a similar number of innings you no know, matter their actual role. So they do play around with that a little bit. But no one has been able to do that. And Mississippi State – It's because the, the ACC is terrible, Joe. Well, I mean, it is pretty mediocre league this year. Like, I mean, there is – there is something to that, like jokes aside, like, you know, there just weren't a lot of teams in the ACC that were really going to push Notre Dame that way. Mississippi state could do it. It's also not the best offense. Like I would dislike this matchup more for Notre Dame if it was Ole Miss in in their offense um, that I think that would be a little bit more uncomfortable setting aside the, you know, which atmosphere would be tougher, all that kind of stuff. But Outside of you know Tanner Allen is obviously a a big bat there, but Mississippi State's offense is not one that goes one through nine with guys that really, really terrify you. And the other thing about Notre Dame is that they're not going to match velocity for velocity, guy for guy with Mississippi State, but they do have some SEC level velocity there. So Bertrand is more of a soft tosser. He's a guy who's got to locate. He's got to get soft contact. He's not going to strike out 12 or 14 Mississippi State hitters. But there are guys on the staff that do have SEC level velocity, so they do have that lever to pull. Um, that's a lot of other teams you figure in this position might not necessarily have, but they do at least to to some degree, and I think that helps because they can they can give them some multiple looks throughout the weekend.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting one. I, Mississippi State just has a different kind of offense than a lot of SEC teams. I don't know if that's going to play better or worse for them in this this regional. They just don't strike out. They they grind out at bats. They don't strike out much. That means they don't necessarily hit as many home runs. Uh, but it's uh, it's just kind of a different kind of offense. But like it's it's we'll it, I, I, we'll see we'll see. I I think that it would be fair if you told me that like look Mississippi State in Starkville like they're probably like that that makes them the favorites here. Like that's fine. But I I think Notre Dame is going to be plenty comfortable and plenty capable of winning uh winning this series and and we'll just have to see how it plays out um you know in in some of these key matchups uh okay so next one on saturday night seven o'clock number three tennessee uh, against louisiana state LSU was the number three seed in the eugene regional they come through the losers bracket all the way through the losers bracket after losing the opener uh, there to, to win the regional and set up an all SCC super. So, uh, SCC fans rest assured there will be an SCC team in Omaha this year, you know, uh, no matter what you're, 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 guaranteed one. Um, this one is a really interesting matchup mostly because of what's happening on the diamond. You've got Tennessee going for its first, uh, college world series appearance since 2005, they're playing incredibly well. Uh, you got LSU, which all of a sudden seems to be playing pretty well here. Uh, they really turned it on there against Oregon over the last uh, weekend, and of course, this has a chance to be the final weekend of Paul Maneri's career, or a chance for him to get LSU to the College World Series as his final, uh, in his final act as a head coach uh, in. In both LSU and, and his overall career, he is he is retiring at the end of the season. He announced that before uh, the NCAA tournament began, and uh, so we're either this could be it for uh, for Paul Maneri. Uh, but the the way the Tigers are playing, the way they played last weekend, you know, I don't want to rule them out. Though I do think Tennessee is going to be incredibly difficult to beat.
1: It's gonna be a fun weekend. I'm looking forward to to being there and taking in that atmosphere, which looked just over the top wild at the regional. <laughs> um, and that starts. And this is not a criticism. That starts from the top down. Like you know, I was I sat in on that. I'm sure many people who are listening saw that the quotes being aggregated on Twitter in the immediate aftermath. But Tony Vitello's media availability yesterday, where he said, you know, he was asked about you know last time they played pulmonary you know, had a quote where he said something like some of the Tennessee fans were downright. I think nasty was the word he used or whatever. And it it was a similar word if it wasn't that exactly. And Vitello said, you know, if that's what we want to call it, like I want them to be that. And he said in no uncertain terms that, you know, I want them to be that because that's I think they're trying to match what they see in some of these other SEC stadiums that frankly have been rocking and rolling for a lot longer than we have here. You know, um, I think Tennessee's kind of reveling in for once for the first time in a long time, having a really true home field advantage here and, and being able to tout the atmosphere at Lindsey Nelson. And so I think that, so I think, I, I think that the supporters there for Tennessee are just primed and ready to be as, as raucous as they've ever been this weekend. And then you add the, the added uh, element of there's going to be some LSU fans coming into town and I imagine there'll be LSU fans that can't even get in the stadium that will just be kind of hanging around doing the tailgating thing, just being around the series and that kind of thing. So I think it's going to be a pretty wild weekend. They're also, I got an email recently uh, just right before we went on the air about they're throwing some sort of block party before Saturday's game. So around the stadium, so thoughts and prayers to me trying to figure out where I'm supposed to park before Saturday's games and then walking a mile and a half to the stadium. Um, Thoughts and prayers to, to, to Joe on that one. Be thinking about me right around, uh, you know, six o'clock Eastern on Saturday night. The, uh,
0: the way that Knoxville has embraced this team has been, I mean,
1: not unsurprising at all. That's what happens there, but it has been very impressive. Well, I mean, that was one of the things about Tennessee fans, like it's kind of unfair, but you know, Tennessee fans were kind of in baseball were kind of thought of as like, not really an engaged fan base. And like, I think a lot of that is just because they hadn't won at this level. Uh, you know, so like it's really tough to get really jazzed about it. I mean, how many fan bases would be really jazzed about their team if they're not ever in the postseason, right? So, uh, so I think that a little, some of that was a little bit unfair, but that was kind of the 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 dig on them. And they've they've turned that around. Um, that the atmosphere looked outstanding and I'm, I'm looking forward to it on the field. Of course, it's going to be a a fun matchup as well. I think they'll I think there'll be some runs scored here, especially once you get past Friday, because I think that was a thing that you couldn't avoid noticing. As LSU came to the Eugene Regional as mammies, these young hitters in the LSU lineup, and they've been good all year. This is not new, but they really do look like they've grown up. Like I mean, these guys are look like grown men now, you know, just just physically and the way they approach the game. And and they they were not detoured at all in that road atmosphere in Oregon, which, you know, is not as raucous as Tennessee is going to be. I get that. But, you know, on the road, a long way from home, and, and those guys just really played up to it. Um, incredible run through the end of the Eugene regional. So I, I think they're going to have the firepower to stick with Tennessee. Tennessee's got a really good pitching staff, a really deep pitching staff, but I think that's a really good contrast to styles there because I, I think LSU is going to be able to, to do some things offensively to stay in this series. So these
0: teams played a series this year and Tennessee swept it in Knoxville at the end of March. Uh, but four runs divided the, those games uh, the only one that wasn't a one run game was the Friday game, which was three to one Tennessee. Then they went nine to eight in 11 innings on, uh, in game two, uh, the, and then it was, uh, three to two in eight innings, uh, in the finale. And, you know, so you've got three really close games. I mean, the teams have changed a fair amount since then, but I think what you're talking about, Joe, with these young hitters growing up for LSU, I think they've changed more, um. You know LSU plays a ton, a ton of younger players, and they uh, it, it's just not a thing that that maybe they were ready for in early March to to get into or late March March period uh, to get into SEC play, and, and I they, but they stuck with them, they grew, and now you're you're probably seeing some of the fruits of of that labor. Um, Tennessee's changed too. blade Tidwell has really come on here in the second half, um, might be their best pitcher. I mean, Chad Dallas will start on Friday, but Tidwell is, uh, is at least as good as him there as a, as a number two, um, you know, some, some of the the Tennessee hitters have that, that started slow have come into their own, uh, as, as the season has continued. So I, while you do have the series on record, um, I'm not that interested in looking back on it and saying, well, Tennessee swept it. So like, they'll, they'll take care of business easily this weekend for two reasons. One, the the growth of both teams that I'm talking about. And then two, like it was, yeah, it was a sweep, but it could have gone the other way very easily. And and so I, I just don't know how instructive that, that series is
1: anymore. Maybe as much as any team not named Dallas Baptist Friday, really important for LSU because behind Lane and Marceau, Things are just a lot tougher. I mean, you say that, but he's got
0: like a 500 record, so they are kind of used to fighting out of that.
1: Yeah, fair. <laughs> but that he is—he is by far
0: their best pitcher. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. It has, there has to be some tough luck in there. Seven and six record with a 2.44 ERA just doesn't exactly. The brain does not really understand what, how that could be possibly the case.
0: The, uh, the run support there is.
1: Uh, it's been lacking. Roger Clemens 2005 Astros level of uh, that's a that's a a reference for about the five people cut. listening yeah so uh, i i want to go jake to uh
0: but sure take, take yeah. it uh, take it wherever you want it there are there are plenty of examples of this over the years in uh <laughs> at all levels of baseball and this year marceau is, has really been hit by it uh all right one more super regional to go um maybe we save the best for last i don't know i'm sure they feel that way in austin which is where we're going Uh, They have, they being Texas, are going to play South Florida there Saturday at nine. Eastern is the start time on this. Texas, the number two team, number two national seed. South Florida, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they're a number four seed. Uh, They came out of the Gainesville regional. They did it the hard way. They beat Florida uh, to open the regional. Then they go out and they beat Miami in the winner's bracket game. Uh, South Florida or South Florida. Yeah. They, they then play South Alabama in the regional final needed both games to get it done there, but South Florida now in their first super regional in program history, Joe, they've been playing really well here the last couple of weeks. We talked about them uh, earlier in the week, considering this is the, the biggest surprise of the super regional field. We, we spent some time on them. Uh, they, they won the American tournament. They won the Gainesville regional they seem to be playing with confidence. They, they seem to have taken some strides as a team. This, however, is a pretty big ask to go into Austin, play a really good pitching staff, a really good team overall, uh, and, and find a way to, to win two
1: games. And yeah, no doubt about that. This would probably be the – of any of the results that could happen this week, and I think South Florida winning this series would be the biggest surprise for me. Um, and South Florida with that. Yeah. South Florida is playing really well right now. I don't want to discount that. It's also just the team that looks like it's, this is such a, like a, I don't know, hard thing to really understand what this means and how much it matters, but it just seems like a team playing really loose right now too. And I, I think those things kind of matter and they clearly have nothing to lose. Right. I mean, they've already wildly exceeded expectations that anybody outside of that clubhouse had for what they could do this postseason. So there is that the formula I think has to be, hope that some of Texas's previous not so much relevant lately but previous concerns offensively kind of crop back up. And they do have some pitching, South Florida does. They've got a couple of starters, Jack Jaziak and, and Colin Sullivan who are both really solid. And they've got a bullpen led by Orion Kirkering who, you know, comes at you with, you know, high 90s heat. So, if they can kind of piece a game or two like that together, you know, I think South Florida can be competitive here. Um, but I would be surprised by that just from the standpoint of Texas has been a better team offensively of late and the pitching up for Texas is just so overwhelming. This was not a great South Florida team offensively during the regular season. So the idea that South Florida is going to, to really get things going. as a pitching staff of Texas's calibers is a little bit hard to fathom. It's not like Texas had the hardest
0: regional. They played Arizona state Fairfield and um, Southern last weekend, but they did outscore opponents 33 to five. that's uh, pretty good if you're scoring at home they have the best i've said this before the best one two three in the country like i'm maybe vanderbilt has a better rotation because they're one two or better than texas's one two but if you throw the three if we're just talking about the best three starters that's texas time add and tristan stevens pete hansen you're not you're not matching that anywhere in the country i don't think and to think that you're gonna beat two of them if you're South Florida, that that's tough for me. The Bulls are another team that has a pretty defined group, like the top five pitchers in their pitching staff are gonna be able to hang. But if you get past that, um, they start running into more problems. So again, I mean in, in a three-game series, maybe you're able to to hide some of that a little bit better. But if if Texas forces the issue, um and you get outside the, those top four, five, six pitchers for for South Florida. It's uh, it's a little tougher. Um, yeah. So I, I, this would be a huge upset if South Florida can do it again. But I, it's a big upset that they're here now. So cannot discount the the belief that they're playing with. They've got some offensive pieces that are are pretty tricky. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be hard to do it against this this Texas pitching staff because not only is it the best one, two, three in the country? They have a three-headed monster at the back of the bullpen that has just been so good for them all, all uh all year long, certainly in the second half, anyway. And uh I I would I'd be very surprised if uh if we aren't seeing Texas in Omaha as a result. So one other thing about this is that uh these are you got the bulls of South Florida, you got the lawnhorns of uh of of Texas. We
1: we we got a lot of a lot of livestock going on in the super. Oh, no kidding. I'm glad they don't have live mascots. They don't feel compelled to like put them together and try to make them interact with each other. I mean, that seems well, like. Well, I mean, be Bevo did
0: not do a good job of interacting with Uga at the Sugar Bowl no. two years ago, three years ago, whatever that was. Yeah, What an ill-conceived idea. Who, thought, who signed <laughs> yeah. off on that? Well, they were like, it would be, wouldn't be. it be cute if the bulldog went to go visit this like massive cow
1: or bull rather? Mm. And the answer was no. No, no. it would not be. <laughs> no, it turns out animals are territorial. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, quite a matchup there. Like exciting uh, livestock matchup for sure. It's the uh, Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo come to life. Uh, the the um the uh a treasured tradition. In Houston, by the way, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo is uh is more than more than just a livestock show and rodeo. I'd argue it's a, a cultural sensation. I would highly recommend it. If anybody comes through Houston in the month of March to, to check it out. Something I grew up going to. Love it. Still enjoy it uh, to this day. But the the thing about South Florida, she was yes, we need to appreciate it for what it is, right? Because they have succeeded expectations. I also think this could be just a really fantastic jumping off point for a team. And we may have talked about this on the the recap podcast and regionals, but I think this could be a really good jumping off point for a team that could be really good in 22 and maybe 23, because the, You know, they've got a lot of youth on
0: this team. A lot of youth.
1: They've got some older players. Orion Kirk, you know, he's actually young too. I've mistaken on that one, but they've got some players who are a little bit older. I was thinking of Colin Sullivan, redshirt senior Colin Sullivan being the older guy. But outside of him and a couple of guys here and there, a lot of freshmen and redshirt freshmen on this team playing big, big, big roles. And this is the type of experience that you can't really, A, they didn't expect to get, and B, you can't really replicate that can really grow a team up fast. And so this feels like a team that should have arrived next year, maybe that started to grow up a little bit early and now they're here. And while it would be a massive um, upset if they were to win this super regional, like taking it just for what it is, like this is fantastic experience for a team that I think is really going to be something to reckon with in the American next year and the year after.
0: I think that's uh that's definitely a really good point. Um, that this is, uh, th- this is also just a team that, you know from for themselves the just the confidence factor yeah the experience and and playing in these kinds of environments is 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 important but the confidence that they'll be able to play with and the seriousness with with which other people like are like us (laughs) are going to take them next year it it is going to be different by virtue of having this experience and then uh, you know me looking down and realizing you know it when I'm looking at at a fall ball lineup for South Florida, like, huh, yeah, they uh, this is this is the lineup they ran out there in in Austin minus one or two guys, and um, I, I that will be uh, that, that's that's definitely a really good point, Joe. All right, so those are the super regionals. Um, I'm not going to ask us to uh, to make picks here. I think you probably could generally guess where the wind was blowing if you uh, if you just listened through all of this. Uh, but Joe, if if I told you that one of the top four teams, so that's Arkansas, Texas, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt, was not in Omaha, who are you saying
1: that it that it is? Vanderbilt. Um, I thought about Tennessee, but I just think that atmosphere is going to be – I think there's such a home field advantage built in there. I think it's also a team just brimming with confidence right now. They, they seem like one of those refuse-to-lose teams. Um, but I think Vanderbilt – could, now they're the favorites in all of them. So let me be clear before, you know, I get accused of not respecting the, the top seeds, but they're all the favorites here, but I think Vanderbilt, because they, they do have such a clear third game problem on their hands and we saw it again in the regional, right? Like getting pushed the way they did by Georgia tech and in, in that final game, you know, we, we saw it just front and center. Once again, the struggle there and the fact that rocker and lighter have been human, Uh very, very, Extremely talented humans, but humans nonetheless. After periods of time earlier in the season when they both looked inhuman in terms of what they were able to accomplish, so I would go Vanderbilt too because I think this is also an East Carolina team that they've knocked on the door just so many times. And I get that it's a different team every year, and so there's not necessarily this you know carryover effect like you might see in pro sports. But it's a program that's just been on the been right on the doorstep time and time and time again. And I, I think this might be a group that's kind of ready to break through because. I do think they can beat you in a lot of different ways. I do think their their depth is, is really, really good this year, maybe beyond what it has been in the past. And it just kind of feels like a team that's ready for that step. I wanna say Tennessee.
0: I think it'd be a fun story to have LSU in Omaha one more time. Uh, it would be a really fun story to have Tennessee in Omaha for the first time since 2005. But I, I think it would be, that'd be a fun thing if if these tigers uh made it to omaha with with paul guiding them one last time part of me wants to say arkansas because i think nc state is a really good team playing really well right now um but i think you might be right with with vanderbilt being the pick i i think that might be the 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 right one of these uh these top four seeds, all of which Again, yeah, they're they're heavy favorites, I would say. Um, but that that might be the the one to look at. Obviously in five through eight feel not not even five through eight since six is out of there. Uh, but the the rest of them like a little more open. Um, you know, again, in, in one of them we don't even have a, a seated team, but uh that those top four teams, they they all just seem so good and uh definitely have to be considered favorites in a, yeah. in a significant way this weekend.
1: Yeah, and there there will be inevitably there's always a super regional where the the, te- the lower seated team just looks like the better team and it's like, well, okay, I guess we we learned a little something about where where these starkful. teams are. Right. So, <laughs> that that's your that you're that's your you're calling your shot there on that one. I guess you <coughs> I don't I don't know what actually. you're talking about. I didn't say anything. So <laughs> no, okay. All right. That starkful. was a cough, huh? Oh, De- definitely starkful. That De- definitely yeah. 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 Yeah, so I mean, this is uh, one of the great things about Super Regional Weekend, though, is there's, I mean, we, we really, because we go back to the best of three format, it, it really does feel like you kind of get more of a heads up look at these two teams facing off, whereas Regionals, the teams in Regional Finals might not have played at all to that point, and they've played different numbers of games, and you do get a little bit of imbalance there. Um, Super Regionals, though, it's it's heads up, it's straight up, the teams have to, have to beat each other. And that is what makes this round
0: so much fun. So we will be back here with another edition of the baseball America college podcast on Tuesday, I guess, to, to recap it all, uh, can't do it on Monday since uh, supers will be, will be wrapping on, on Monday, but we'll uh, we'll be back here to talk all of the super regional wrap up, start to get ready for Omaha here next Tuesday. So make sure you're, you are subscribed to the baseball America podcast on your favorite podcast app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find it hit the subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. There's plenty of content over at BaseballAmerica.com to help you get ready for Super Regionals, get ready for the draft, get into the pro season, whatever you're looking for. We've got it over there at BaseballAmerica.com. Thank you all to listening to this edition of the Baseball America College Podcast, which like every episode is presented by Wrap Soto. So for Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.